Hey, this is Kev Zettler. And I'm Zoliver Nelson Jr. And I'm Jim Stormdancer, and this is Topic Lords, the only place on the internet you can hear topics discussed. Kev, would you like to introduce yourself, or do you have anything to plug? Uh, yeah. It's good to be back here, Jim. I really like what you've done with the place. It's got a nice flow to it since I've been back. Uh, I'd like to plug uh, my website, radcade.com, that I've been working on. It's the raddest place to play web games and learn how to build web games. What are, what are some games you have up there now? That's a good question. We have we have a lot of IO games up there, which are like multiplayer games, and I'm blanking on any immediate titles, uh, but we also got some cool emulator stuff happening on there as well. Yeah, do you have any Apple II games? Uh, no, no Apple II emulator yet, but that's that's interesting future there. You should just clone the archive.org emulator library, just have it on your website as well. We're using that as a base for our library with some other improvements. So we've been following a lot of their work. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, Nelson, would you like to introduce yourself or do you have anything to plug? I'm Zoliver Nelson Jr., uh, a game director and writer working in video games and beyond these days. And what I will plug is uh, I've been writing comics these days that people seem to really like, including a fantastic little series of heartbreaking vignettes called Sherlock Holmes Hunts the Mothman. And you can read that on itch.io. All right. So I'm going to, I'm going to go out on a limb here because I don't remember how to, I don't remember the whole name, but what's the latest with an airport for aliens currently run by dogs. You nailed it. How did you remember all of that? It's been years. That just sounds like a masterpiece based on that title. The title itself is the masterpiece. The video game itself is ancillary. <laughs> that game is in alpha and we just added the ability to interact with dogs in a whole new way through what we call the dog mod system. So if you, for example, wave a magic wand at a dog, they will become magical. If you throw a tennis ball in their direction, they'll get fired up and go super saiyan and sparkle. If you throw a, a thing of toilet paper at them or a bar of soap, they will become clean. Uh, and they can be clean and dirty at the same time. Because if you have ever owned a dog, you know that these states can coexist. So you can TP your dog, but that just cleans the dog. Absolutely. Comparatively to other things like money, money's stinky. You can't clean a dog with money. That's silly. What are some crazy dog synergies you can uh, create with that system? You have dirty Super Saiyan dogs and that kind of stuff happening? Oh, absolutely. My favorite one is that uh, you can throw a guitar at a dog and the dog will take up said guitar and start rocking out. And if you throw a saxophone at another nearby dog, they will play in sync with each other. You can start a little band at any time, anywhere. So you can make it a dog jam band. Yes. Amazing. This is the greatest game that's ever existed. <laughs> barring uh, the fantastic things hosted on radgames.com or the thing that Kev said earlier. Insert in Kev's voice, if you can splice in the exact URL, that would be helpful. Yeah. Just stick that in exactly to the center. Radcade.com. It's early. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, we'll do. Appreciate that cross show. Gotta do it. So I know none of us are lawyers, but if, for example, an airport for aliens currently run by dogs were to 
uh, not include the guitar tablature, but were to download it on the fly, like it, it knows about guitartabs.com or whatever a website is that has guitar tabs, gets a random one every time you throw a guitar at a dog and plays it. And that's what the dog plays and like the palm, the fingering matches the, the tablature properly. Can they really sue you for that? Some people would call that scope creep. What I would say is that it's an opportunity to make a dog play Wonderwall. And the <laughs> I think that the forces of good and right on are on our side, actually. I, I have to admit, when I heard about this game, I thought it was just scope creep the game. So... I'm surprised that's an objection. We're we're in alpha. It's it's shipping early next year. It's it's somehow not scope creep the game. Well, it is scope creep the game, but like a scope creep game that ships. My entire career has been that. Uh, I, I come yeah, up with things too. that shouldn't <laughs> ship, and then I ship them, and then I feel this deep sense of uh, cosmic unease, like I violated some <laughs> ancient contract, and the price will soon be paid, if not by me, by someone else. Every time I release a game or make an announcement, uh, the monkey paw curls for someone. And I'm so sorry for all those someones. <laughs> Are we ready to start on some topics? Yes. Radcade.com. Kev, your topic is the fine art of professional wrestling. Oh boy, this is a big one. So I am a huge professional wrestling fan. I know it gets a lot of hate. People say it's fake, you know. People say it's trashy. It is a little trashy, but uh, it's it's it is definitely trashy. <laughs> I don't think it like I think in the circles we run in, like the game dev circles or at least the indie game dev circles, I think more people like it than don't. Yeah. So it's best not to think of it as a serious sport, but more as a theatrical performance art. And if if you think of it from that aspect, it's like a ballet performed by stunt professionals and so you know the and stunts like reactive to the audience exactly yeah o- audience participation is a huge thing uh so what one aspect i like to talk about is like the industry terms and the slang because i think that's really fascinating so uh, they have some unique jargon or some unique terms like for example uh, a baby face is the wrestler that the crowd is cheering on. They're the fan favorite. And a heel is the wrestler that the crowd is booing against. I don't know why. what the heel means in that description. Like, they're the heel of the company. Like, you know, they take the brunt of uh, the negative response, I guess. And then some other terms are like, a jobber is you know, not a celebrity wrestler is just a guy who comes in and he does a job and, you know, he gets, he gets squashed, which means to, you know, immediately lose the match. And then one of my favorites is a botch. It's when a wrestler goes to perform, uh, you know, a stunt or a move and completely misses it, falls on their face. So I find these terms like creeping into my daily kind of uh vocabulary now and i'll be doing like business meetings or something and i'll be like yeah this uh, product launch was a huge botch uh, we look like a bunch of jobbers on this thing you know like that's <laughs> kind of poisoned my brain i guess in that aspect regarding wrestling speak there's a tweet by hulk hogan that just says it's a work brother can you uh, can you speak to this do you know what that means he says it's a work brother 
That, okay, that wasn't the that wasn't the one I was thinking of. Uh, oh, but I would love to hear the one you're thinking of. He has, he has another one where it's like it's a work for marks who are smart marks and don't know when they're being worked or if they're not. Oh, let's do translate that one instead. That's like because it's a superset of mine. So uh, some other terms I didn't mention is a mark is uh, one of the audience participants and. I think that's the same terminology as somebody who's running like a street hustle or something and you have paid, your, yeah. your mark. That's that's somebody you want to engage and fall for the performance. Another term is kayfabe, which is I believe is a Japanese term where it's, you know, the the art is reinforced by the audience participation and it's suspended suspension of disbelief. So you you know, you're like, "Hey, this isn't this is totally real." And you're like totally engaged. So, so a mark is an audience member who's falling for it. A smart, smart mark is an audience member who's aware of the internals of the business and is on like, you know, uh, the internet looking up matches and this kind of stuff. And then a work is when the wrestlers are putting on a performance. They're doing some really thought out routine or like stunt right like you know jumping off the top ropes with a garbage can onto somebody or something like that effect okay that seems like a natural etymology i was looking up the etymology of heel and that's just apparently slang from the early 20th century for a contemptible person oh interesting so on one hand they're picking up from from street crime and on the other hand they are stealing vocabulary from Victorian urchins. I, that's that's a medium I can get behind. Yeah, I mean, wrestling, like, I think it originated in, like, you know, uh, carny speak from in the 19th century. Interesting. I'm up for that. I, I think one of the reasons that so many indies, or at least indies that I know, indie game developers, uh, are into professional wrestling is that it's one of the biggest and most mature examples of dynamic narrative, like audience reactive storytelling, improvisational storytelling. And I would be really into that if the whole thing weren't like about macho posturing. Like if they could tell a different story than that would be cool. Yeah. So that's a good point. And one thing I've gotten into more lately is uh, like women's wrestling that's become big in like the past uh five to ten years and that's like less macho and it's more like character driven so you you have like the women have way more character development and interesting kind of backstories and stuff like that than just like you know fucking big big beefy dudes slapping beef on each other or whatever <laughs> yeah that that, is, that does sound promising i've also heard similar things about uh japanese wrestling oh yeah absolutely I'm seeing a lot of game developers. I don't know what started it, but I'm seeing more and more game developers just gradually start talking about wrestling and getting into wrestling. As far as meme warfare thought devices, there are worse things than muscled theatrical performers doing their dangdest and following their storylines. Like there's there, there's worse things to become subject to. There's a GDC talk from uh, 2019, and it was uh, about uh, storytelling from professional wrestling. I actually haven't seen it yet, but I've been meaning to watch it. I think I need to get in the vault or something. Yeah, if it's um, 
I think everything from this might not be true anymore, but for a while, everything older than a year was free in the vault. Here's a here's a topic change. Do you think GDC is ever going to happen again? Ooh, that's a good one. In person GDC? Yeah. I th- I think they they did the digital digital GDC this year. They're going to do another digital GDC. I think there will be another in person GDC. And the cynical side of me says the first time that they do it, you're going to see a whole lot of uh, stuff pop off as a result of it. So it'll be a couple more years before they can do it again. And then <laughs> it will be fine. Yeah, I feel like that they're definitely going to try to do it in person again because it's such a such a beast, you know, it's such a huge entity now. But uh, yeah, I don't I don't know if it's going to be the same. And I feel like there may be other like indie cons spinning off from it. Because from what I saw the past couple of years, sentiment had been, it's like, oh, it's got too big. It's just so noisy. Like everyone started doing these sideshow kind of events and meetups around it and everything. I think yeah. I think it's opportunity for uh, those indie events to maybe spin off into something uh, of their own. Yeah, that would be interesting. I, I always did like Lost Levels better than the actual official events. But I wonder whether or not the Lost Levels can exist without GDC just like bringing everybody to the same place at the same time. Right. I also uh, believe that GDC was, without telling anybody they were doing this, was like renting out the space in Yerba Buena Gardens, like to to officially reserve it uh, so that all the, uh, the people who were just go to hang out there, we're allowed to stay and there wouldn't suddenly be another event in that space at that time. And that's a really, for, for all of the, of the criticism that GDC gets, and uh, I'm not speaking on the behalf of GDC, it's important to say, um, I'm, I'm a Indie Game Summit advisor, but I'm not a part of their official organization. I'm outside of it and I don't speak for GDC. All that said, I think it's, there's a lot of criticism of GDC and the organization and the larger organizational structures of it that are valid, but moves like the thing of making sure the Yerba Buena Garden didn't get incredibly commodified, uh, as was very clearly on the horizon before they quietly did that. I it makes me thankful for that event, and it makes me recognize that so much of the value of GDC did result from going to that park if you traveled well whether you went to gdc or not if you traveled to san francisco for that week there is a degree to which at least i felt like i was a part of the games industry every building i went to every room i went into every patch of grass i sat on i either knew the person uh next to me or I would come to know them and appreciate them and we would dig each other's work and it would start something. I, I, I miss that, that physical sense of belonging. And it, it, I think it is one of the big reasons why as soon as they can, even if it's premature, I can see so many events trying to be the first one to pull the trigger and come back because we want that and we need that. Yeah. And I have to wonder now that Simon Carlos isn't running GDC. I don't think the Indies were ever really a big money maker for that organization, but I think he always had a soft spot for them. And I wonder him leaving, how much is that going to change the culture of that company? And 
are we still going to see that sort of favor going forward? Yeah. No organization is guided by a single person, but you can definitely see people people who champion things make a difference. And I'm hoping that the folks who are stepping in to that breach are maintaining that very human perspective. Because again, like even if indies weren't the main moneymakers, what they brought to the table was a very tangible sense of, yeah, like games is a giant community and you come to San Francisco because everybody's here. Here's the indies over, over taking over this one little space over here. Here's a small party you didn't hear of. Just over the course of the week, learning about how many things have been happening in the city that you weren't aware of. Like we're on this giant open world map and there's all these limited time events and you've only been exposed to like two out of dozens. If anything, one of the interesting things about going to GDC is discovering how much of a patchwork our community is. It, it is a bunch of shared and unshared Venn diagrams that for a single week are incredibly exposed and able to be examined. So how do we tie this back into wrestling? <laughs> we need, we need uh, some... Some game devs, uh, some, you know, D-levels game dev celebrities doing some uh, independent wrestling matches at the next GDC. Set up a ring in Yerberwena Gardens. <laughs> Every game dev enters, one game dev leaves. With Simon gone, the developers can rent Yerberwena. Jonathan Blow will step into that ring. Now he knows Tai Chi. Someone will appear to body slam him. <laughs> and then we're off to the races. Oh, is there a race too? <laughs> there, there is a, a, if only just to keep people from getting inside of the ring, there is a constant, only thing I can use to describe this is a human moat. There's a constant human moat whirling around this ring composed of human beings who are just running behind each other in, in, in a circle. It's called the Death March. And whoever falls down last uh, gets a pizza to take home. <laughs> Good. I'm, I'm glad we're not budgeting for a better prize than that because I don't have that money. <laughs> I certainly don't. We're all going to have to chip in for the uh, for both the space and the ring. Uh, are we ready for another topic? Radcade.com. Uh, Nelson, your topic is stealing the Declaration of Independence to save Nicolas Cage's life. It's the only way to save him and here's why. There is a contract sealed in blood from the foundation of the United States of America uh, that states that there will be a son, a son of the country who will be born of a family, a family of artists and creators. He is going to make very, very silly voices sometimes, and he will be one of the most legendary actors to exist. This is a contract sealed in blood. There was a prophecy. There's a seance. You can... You can look this up. This is all a matter of public record. There is a point at which this son, according to the prophecy, is going to fall. And the only way to save him is to steal the contract, the Declaration of Independence, the, the secret fraternity that Michael Bay attempted to initiate us into with the National Treasure films. Was that Michael Bay? I hope it was Michael Bay. I'm on, I'm on a little bit of a it's John Turtletop. John Turtletop attempted to induct us into a secret <laughs> world alongside Jerry Bruckheimer. And having been 
shown this window into the past. When Nicolas Cage falls, the one way to save his life will be stealing the Declaration of Independence, folding it into his wound and seeing him regenerate to become the true son of America. And the question isn't if it will happen, it's when and who is going to be ready to take up that burden when the time comes. Because it it's going to be on a very tight timeline. Like we're going to have maybe an hour and 45 minutes, a very snappy action film type pace. Who's going to be there to steal the Declaration of Independence when the time comes to save Nicolas Cage's life? And are they on call waiting right now? Because if they aren't, I kind of feel like they should be. It's irresponsible otherwise. How, how will we know it's time, time to get stolen? I feel like it would be the announcement would happen pretty quickly. It would be. Is, is that what these metal monoliths are about? Is that the marketing for this big uh, heist to save Nicolas Cage? I have to imagine this is just like you're trying to you're trying to watch Conan O'Brien and like suddenly there's a there's breaking news and like the 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 breaking news theme goes on for too long. So you think it's a bit, uh, but it's just because they're just collecting themselves to <laughs> to to break this information to you that Nicolas Cage is about to die. <laughs> Nicolas Cage uh, injured in bear fighting accident. And you know that it's the time. That's it's that's it. That's right there. That's the call to adventure. Okay. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm here's the the steps that I'm going to take. And having done this, I will consider my part to be done. So I don't need to take part in the heist because that sounds dangerous. I'm going to uh, write some bear tracking software. You can go to is Nicholas Cage next to a bear dot com, <laughs> and it'll say yes or no. Depending on how close Nicolas Cage is to a bear. And the reality is, especially in the time of COVID, that's pretty dang easy software to write, says the man who doesn't oh, yeah, write software. Oh, yeah, the first version is just going to say no, and then I'll, I'll, fix, I'll, I'll fix the bugs later. Yeah, the, like, but, like we know where bears hang out in general. So, like, if, you're within, if, he's, with, if he's filming a, a film within 20 miles of a bear... You just change the wording. Yeah, the the software is what it's going to do is it's going to it's going to scrape TMZ.com for the words Nicolas Cage and Bear and actually base it on the proximity of those words <laughs> being together. That does sound easier than geolocation. And what I also like about the solution is that because of the of the powerful algorithm driving is Nicolas Cage next to a bear.com you can have, if he is next to a bear, you put yes, parentheses, get ready to steal the Declaration of Independence, end parentheses, period. So if we live in a world where someone has built a is Nicholas Cage next to a bear.com that people access on the regular, that implies people know of his situation and that there may be the need to act on it sometime in the future. Why does the uh, why does the declaration then have to be stolen if there's this awareness of a segment of uh, society that's got an eye on Nicolas Cage? Are you saying that if Nicolas Cage is injured, the United States government will simply give it to us? Yes. No, you have to steal it. It says so right in the contract. <laughs> oh, that's a good point. <laughs> it's in blood. You're right. It's in blood, too. 
it, there's a little asterisk next to it, uh, next to several of the words that says, note, Declaration of Independence must underline to be stolen. So can we just steal it right now and save ourselves the time later? I feel like you have to steal it when the time comes. Otherwise, it doesn't work. If you preemptively steal it, then again, you're in the situation where whoever's holding it just gives it to Nicholas Cage. It's, no, it's a two-part operation. You have to steal the de- Declaration of Independence and save his life. All right. What if I were to steal it now? And then when the time comes, I walk out there very conspicuously holding like holding it rolled up like a newspaper. And then when an urchin comes by, it snatches it out of my hands and I'll say, you give that back. And then the urchin runs off and saves Nicolas Cage. And then I'll call 911, but secretly I'll be <laughs> relieved that my job is done. It depends on, hey, we're none of us are lawyers here. It depends on the term of the blood contract, right? That, that may fall within those guidelines. I, I don't know exactly what the term, uh, what is it like? I was going to say habeas corpus, but I don't know what that means either. Uh, a scope of limitation? Isn't there? No, statute of limitations. There's a statute of limitations on attempting to negotiate, renegotiate the blood contract, and that passed like 150 years ago. Is there a segment of the U.S. courts that's devoted to practicing uh, Nicolas Cage blood contract law and upholding these? Uh... The constitutional law, yeah. <laughs> So that people can't dunk on me after this episode comes out. I've just learned what habeas corpus means. And it turns out it's super important. This is your topic lords <laughs> reminder of the day. Look up habeas corpus. Educate yourself. <laughs> it matters. All right. We'll link to it in the show notes. <laughs> uh, are you ready for another topic? Radcade.com. So my topic is Atari 2600 Adventures Effectiveness as a port of Crowther and Woods Adventure. So, um, Crowther and Woods Adventure was made in, some, I think it was 1977, something like that. Wow. And it was um, the origin of the text adventure genre, uh, which is a game genre where the game tells you in, in um, second person prose what's happening in the game. And then you type com- imperative English commands to tell your avatar what to do and um the way it's structured is that you are you start out outside of a cave you have to figure out how to get into the cave and you have, then you are exploring the cave collecting treasures and and your 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 end goal is to get all the treasure in the cave to be out of the cave basically uh but the the interesting part of the game is all the the things you find along the way, the the vistas you you discover, the puzzles you solve to get uh to get all this done. And Atari 2600 Adventure was designed to be a adaptation of that game to uh the Atari 2600 which was a system with extremely limited it had a 128 bytes of RAM and it had super, super restrictive graphics hardware where effectively what it can draw is a uh, background that is horizontally symmetrical and two sprites and then like two dots, I think, something like that. And that's like, unless you go into like really complicated programming tricks, that's what you're, that's what you're, the system can draw. And the challenge becomes like, how do you take 
a game that 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 is many many kilobytes in size uh that occurs over many different like locations and largely it frankly occurs in the player's mind because it's uh it's yeah it's it's all prose and it's like a very evocative prose how do you take that and translate it into this very restricted system and do actually they actually do a really good job but i think the most important thing is that like if you look at uh video games of the era if you divide them into games that are like arcade style start the game you play for a few minutes and then you die and you're trying to get a higher score than last time versus kinds of games where you are exploring a space and your goal is to get to the end of the story almost all of the latter are text adventures like up until like the early 80s that was that was true and so this was Atari 2600 adventure more than like it's porting of like, oh, you can get a lamp and light up dark spaces, which is true of both games. Um, the What's interesting about Atari 2600 Adventure is that it was a game where you explore until you find the ending. I'm uh, I'm playing through the, the Atari 2600 version of Adventure right now, thanks to the magic of the internet. And nice. it's... Yeah, archive.org is amazing, and it's rad. It's a really good game. I didn't expect to connect with it, especially considering the age and everything else, and that the dragon looks like a duck. Right. But yep. it is a game that has a surprising amount of... Yeah, it feels like you're having, even on the Atari 2600, a legitimate adventure in comparison to the games of the period. This is, I would say, from that perspective, it's a really good adaptation. Yeah, yeah. I, and I, I actually don't think there's any lineage here, but it feels a lot like um, The Legend of Zelda, like a yes. very primitive version, early version of that. So, Jim, you're saying that this is the first kind of game to capture that uh, exploration, that uh, wanderlust, that, that vibe of these previously text adventure Zork-like uh, games. And you feel like this was a really strong example of them bringing that previously text-only experience to this limited graphic hardware. Is that right? Yeah, I don't know about the first, but it's a it's one of the earliest that it's it's like the earliest that I can think of, and it's it's it is a very strong example of it. And to bringing it to um, a context that used to be just arcade-style games, I think. A popular popularizing it on like a home console uh, yeah I, I think that's a it's really interesting in that respect and i think that's um i think that's actually why the 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 adventure game genre is called that because it had its origins in uh that sort of gameplay well that makes a lot of sense so when you compare it to uh crother in the woods adventure jim does it have like a similar storyline? Like, is there, you know, like you start an adventure and you have to grab a key, go into a castle and then pick up the sword or the arrow or whatever it's, that is. It's got a lot of very similar elements. Yeah. Like, I don't think they're like wandering dragons and a wandering bat in adventure, but adventure does have like a wandering NPC that will come and steal your stuff. And adventure has like mazes, some of which are dark. And adventure does have you know locks and keys, and I think um, one of the one of the innovations that just in ter- just in terms of the the tech 
one of the innovations that Atari 2600 Adventure brought to that system was traveling from room to room, you know, a, a, a world that is more than just a single screen. Interesting. Yeah. There's been a lot of controversy about how a adaptation, remaster, or remake changes the meaning of the original spurred around the, um, the recent overhaul that Demon's Souls received for the PS5. Oh, sure. And with that in mind, is the, the Atari 2600 version of Adventure technically the first one of these? <laughs> you go from on, on your Apple II playing William Crowther's Adventure, and then you open up Adventure on, on the Atari 2600 and go like, oh, this isn't like the original ver- vision of the game at all. Yeah. It's different enough. Um, and we'll, we may get to this depending on how much we have time. I think, I think you're, you have a topic that speaks to this sort of idea. Uh, it's different enough that it doesn't feel like an adaptation so much as a new things that, it, that is inspired by. I would love to see an um, adaptation of Demon Souls that is called Demon Souls, but it is that to uh, – yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what a good um, – you'd have to invent a platform to port it to that just couldn't do a – maybe just a VR port would do it. But you'd have to really reimagine how that game works to make it happen. I'm thinking a fourth dimensional version of Demon Souls where uh-huh. uh, they say, hey, we know that the Demon Souls you know and love is in 3D, but this is in 4D. So that means we have to do some different things now. <laughs> <laughs> That's a that's a version of Demon Souls that I'd want to have my mind melted by. Are we ready for another topic? Radcade.com. This is a write-in. Larry asks, that one time Taco Bell promised every American a free taco if the Mir space station hit a taco target in the Indian Ocean, but it missed by an entire hemisphere. Wait, what, what do we mean by hit here? Like the space station itself was... Supposed to hit a target, or it was launching some kind of projectile to hit a target. I think Mir fell into the ocean. And Taco Bell said, Hey, NASA, why don't you land on our special taco target with Taco Bell branding TM? Because if you do, we'll give every American a free taco. Uh, so, according to chiefmarketer.com, this is an article <laughs> from 2001. The marketing team at Taco Bell, Irvine, California, last week generated some buzz by promising free tacos to the entire U.S. population if Russia's Mir space station landed on a 40 by 40 foot target on its return to Earth. Wait, 40 by 40 is minuscule. It's a, it's a big taco. It's a big taco, but a small target for a station. Yeah. This article says Taco Bell estimated that giving all 281 million Americans a free taco would have cost about 10 million. But I was not aware of this event. And now learning about this, I'm kind of bummed thinking about it. Because imagine the reality where the mirror nails the taco target. All of America is having a taco in the streets party, right? And becomes a holiday or something. like It's, it's the new V-Day. I'm imagining a skater boy in 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 the '90s, early 2000s, dipping his girlfriend and smooching her as taco cheese falls from the sky. <laughs> this is the new ticker tape. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, that's that's the imagery I have, you know, group of F-15s flying in formation with like American flag <laughs> smoke blowing out as people are in the streets sharing tacos and yeah. Right, right. It also suggests a kind of dystopian, rea- a, a kind of dystopian reality of capitalism, which is that Taco Bell could just solve wor- American hunger if it wanted to. <laughs> well, for a day. For a day, yeah. <laughs> for a day, but it offers this window into a tantalizing reality where... Yeah, but what we, what we would need is for Mir to hit that target every day. <laughs> and you know what? Maybe that is maybe that is the price that is worth paying for a solution to world hunger. If... Taco Bell is out here just saying, hey, we can give every American a free taco. I, I feel like that would inspire, in, in one version of the world, it inspired people to say, well, why can't you do that every day, Taco Bell? And then Taco Bell begins to sweat and it's like, why can't you do that every day? And that's where the revolution <laughs> starts. <laughs> right. Taco Bell executives up against the wall. Taco Bell tried this as just a PR stunt, right? Like they put it out there, oh, if it hits our platform, we'll give up free tacos. But imagine the PR returns they would have got if they invested more effort into it and it actually happened. Right. If they hired some engineers to like go with jetpacks to guide it down. Uh, The implications of this happening, if this happening in any reality we can talk about Westworld and frickin' uh, <laughs> The Man in the High Castle all day. The real alternate reality I want to see is one where the branch point is the Taco Bell feeding every American for a day event and how that changes the world. Yeah. Taco Bell V-Day. Like, get, get Max Brooks on this. Yes. Are we ready for another topic? Radcade.com. Uh, Kev, your topic is nonviolent communication. So, nonviolent communication is a therapeutic communication practice. Uh, it was developed by a guy named Marshall Rosenberg in the 90s, I believe. Uh, but it's basically just a conversation practice or a speech practice. It's based on the idea of well, if, if you're practicing nonviolent communication, you need to talk about what violent communication is. And the idea of violent communication is essentially when you have expressions or phrases where people say something like, well, that sucks, or, you know, you shouldn't do that. It's bad, right? That's bad. Don't do that. That's bad. Where there's not really a lot of substance to what you're saying. It's just an emotional reaction that you have had personally or something or some unconscious bias that you're then kind of spewing out, right? Right. And the idea behind nonviolent communication, which, you know, is valuable when you're interacting with other people, is, uh, you know, if you have that reaction to be like, oh, well, let's let's not use this technology, it sucks, or like that, that cell phone brand's trash, that's bad, is to, you know, pause yourself and be like, hey, I don't think we should make this decision because I have prior experience that, you know, I have PTSD and this is what happened to me personally. And uh, yeah, that's why I think this may be a bad idea, right? That's my very high level uh, explanation of it. But there's a lot of uh, nuance and uh, things to practice. 
I just like sharing that idea with people because I think it's uh, pretty interesting to practice in like work or relationships and uh, stuff like that. And how did you come across this idea? A friend of mine shared a book. The not is actually the nonviolent communication book, and I've seen it, you know, shared around uh, some tech circles on Twitter and everything, and it's pretty interesting. I, so, if I'm understanding the, the principles of this correctly, violent communication is communication offered without any context, in a tone of aggression, with little regard for the other pe- person. Yeah, and nonviolent communication is the opposite of that, in which understanding context is offered as well as the communication itself being couched in empathy. And I think there's some history to it too, to like uh, kind of the evolution of spoken word and communication, and how it like goes back to feudal times or something. I think at the very least, the concept itself is really, really intriguing because. As much as they say sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Gosh, those people are liars. <laughs> <laughs> words totally can and do hurt. It, it's messed up. Yeah, I um, I feel like I've come across these ideas. I've never, I've never heard them given name. So that's interesting to me. I've never like heard of this as a, a school of a, a named school of thought. That one could identify as as following. Yeah, um, I guess another piece of the like the core practice that I kind of glossed over is it's the idea that a lot of communication is about expressing needs, right? Like you're hungry or whatever emotional need or uh, you know just whatever human uh, need. And a lot of times the violent communication comes from, hey, you have this need, it's not being met, you accidentally lash out, you say something toxic, right? You know, maybe you're hungry, someone's bugging you, you like, you blow them off, you say something kind of crass because you're thinking about getting your blood sugar back up and, you know, you want to bounce out of the conversation. But yeah, that's another of the core principles. Yeah, yeah. Skimming this, it looks like like one of the one of the important ideas is like when you are talking about the need you're feeling to uh, couch it in terms of like speaking about yourself rather than speaking about the way the people around you are affecting how you feel. Right. That's like uh, use I statements instead of you statements. So you know if you're right. addressing someone and you'd be like, "Hey, you're annoying me, right? I'm trying to watch TV. You're annoying me." Um, it's, it's more about staying on your side of the fence and being like, I am annoyed because of you. (laughs) (laughs) See that, that gets into the whole nuance of uh, the practice, right? It's like, how do you, how do you communicate to somebody that you need them to change their behavior without like triggering them by using a you statement? So a lot of the practice is like, I, you know, I'm trying to watch TV and however, I have a hearing deficit because I played in a band for 10 years and I'm having a hard time hearing this show with all the background noise I observed, right? Like, Yeah, this sounds like a you problem. <laughs> <laughs> Is this where the halt principle comes from? Because that's one that I grew up with. Um, I've heard that before. I don't know if it's... Related. That, wait, that's the that's the halt, hungry, angry, angry, lonely, tired kind of principle. Yes. Uh, for those who are not familiar with this, there is a phrase called halt. It says 
hey, if you're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, don't do the thing that you're about to do. <laughs> uh, and it's a very useful way of just doing a quick spot check of, I'm. are you in a great place right now? And if not, is this the best is it, are you in the best position to be making a decision? Yeah, I don't think that's directly related to nonviolent communication, but uh, NVC, short for nonviolent communication, can definitely help you, you know, communicate those inner states to people during those times. Gotcha. Are we ready for another topic? Radcade.com. Uh, Nelson, your topic is the, thresh- the threshold between an object slash entity being large and so large that your brain can no longer process it effectively, and you're no longer impressed. Yes. For a little bit of context, I noticed that big things make my brain go, ooh, and an alternate effect where if something is really, really big, the effect is no longer proportional. There is a plateau that then leads to a decline where I go from incredibly impressed or in awe to being like, oh, that's big, to I guess that is a large thing. I'm looking at something 10 times smaller than the thing that impressed, it's 10 times larger than the thing that impressed me, but feeling nothing. And I'm wondering, it. do y'all feel that sometimes? Whether you're looking at an open world map or even like looking up at a building where sometimes something that is smaller will inspire more awe than something that is larger just because, are we built like that? Is it just me? It's too big to even think about, yeah. Yeah, um, like my most common interaction with this sort of idea is suddenly remember that remembering that Jupiter exists and being terrified. <laughs> but I never feel that way about the sun. Okay, so I know Jupiter is really big, really big to the point that it is terrifying. I I can absorb in my head that the moon is big, but when I look at it, I'm like, not that big. <laughs> <laughs> but it depends on whether it's near the horizon, right? Yeah. The last time I was very scared of the moon was Bloodborne. I'm wondering if this is an individual thing, if it is based on uh, received expectations, depictions, like if you're so familiar with the moon, it no longer impresses you as much because you are familiar with so many different ways of playing with the scale and various pieces of media. Or if it is wired into our lizard brain that when you see something so big, that it is going to be existentially terrifying to you, your brain flips a little switch and goes, actually, no, this is normal size. Actually, this is just fine. Yeah, I I honestly, I think this is, it probably comes from like the same evolutionary processes that decided that like, we should be terrified of enormous mammoths, but not terrified of like the land under us even though the earth is way bigger than a mammoth. Oh, I never considered that. And there's like fault lines and stuff. Oh yeah. You could, you can be eaten by the earth. (laughs) I can't say I've ever, uh, tripped out on this. Um, I think the closest experience I've had is I grew up in a very, very small, like rural town. And then I would start going to like Chicago, a very urban metropolitan area. And, I would have some like culture shock just by the size of the buildings there, right? So it had this feeling of like, holy crap, there's all these uh, like apartment units and there's people living out lives in each one of these individual apartment units. So I would start to, you know, go down that 
chain of thoughts and eventually it just you know became desensitized to it stopped and stopped thinking about that but for sure there was a period of uh, shock at first that makes sense another thing that might be a factor here is that i feel like it's natural to um like I'm, I'm not sure which which kinds of objects you're thinking of but like one uh heuristic that humans seem to use for whether or not to be impressed by something is whether by something size specifically is whether it's horizontal or vertical interesting so like uh a, you can be driving for a hundred miles and that's nothing but then like you see a a hundred foot cliff and like whoa a hundred feet yeah interesting so the from from this scale factor, the Grand Canyon is kind of like S-tier band because it is both incredibly wide and incredibly deep. Mm-hmm. When you say vertical, does, do you, does it matter whether it's uh, vertical up or vertical down? Are you as impressed by something that rises into the sky as something that sinks into the earth? I think you are. I think it's about the same, yeah. I went to Carlsbad Caverns and uh, definitely realizing the scale of what I was walking through, I could believe that people who have inhabited that that region for hundreds of years before Americans, why they believed that spirits and gods lived there. Right. We weren't meant to go a hundred feet below. (laughs) Right. I could just walk a hundred feet right now. In almost any direction, except for up or down. And you're saying that would be different if we could fly because flying is familiar. Maybe what we're discussing is the is the uncanny fear of the unknown. If it trips, like, your... If you're someone who's used to heights, you aren't really impressed with, you know, a three-story building. Uh, if you could, If we could fly as a species, we probably would not be as impressed with tall things. But because we can't, we feel that seems right yeah yeah i'm on board with this you you've helped me work through something which has been legitimately pounding my 2020 so thank you <laughs> wow just in time what uh what have these large uh, entities that have been hounding you been <laughs> what do they tell you when you sleep <laughs> i've been a lot of places and i'm very thankful for that and i noticed that there is being in a lot of places that people have been very impressed by, uh, I, I've loved a lot of cool uh, places and visited them for work and so on. I realized how often my scale of what I thought was cool or what was impressive was not what was on like a travel guide. I was impressed by like a random building in uh, Poznan, Poland, um, when I wasn't as impressed by, you know, a piece of architecture in France. Just Versailles wasn't particularly taken with this incredibly large uh, building built on the back of the French peasantry. And yet I stand inside of Notre Dame, which is comparatively to a lot of even cathedrals, including cathedrals I've gone to. Uh, There's cathedrals in Germany, which dwarf it in size. And yet being inside of there, I felt something different and sacred and holy and impressive. And I was wondering what was the internal scale my brain was operating on? And what we've uncovered in many of the topics today is that humans don't make any frickin' sense. And there's a comfort there. <laughs> I'm glad you can, you can appreciate that. Yeah, I feel, I feel immensely better. <laughs> <laughs>
it, it's a it's a load off. Just realizing that you're you're this beast, and you're always going to be this irrational beast, and all you can do is your best. Yeah, and, and that's also a bit scary because maybe I'm thinking about that because I, I get older this week. But um, oh, happy birthday! Well, thank you. There's a degree. Happy birthday. He said it first. You don't get any points now. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But there's a degree to which, like, you spend a lot of, especially when you're, quote unquote, growing up, you you spend a lot of time thinking, I'm going to go from being, I was so irrational last year. Next year, I'm not going to be irrational. Next year, I will have reached the plateau of being a full human being, and I will make sense, and the world will make sense. And that isn't what happens at all. And that's jarring. Yeah, that's very ambitious. Yeah. (laughs) Listen, some people in their early 20s wanted to get laid. I wanted to overcome mortality itself. Different goals emerging from the same root, which is hubris. (laughs) We both had hubris. (laughs) Uh, Are we ready for another topic? Radcade.com. So my topic is sucking a glass onto your face. This is a thing that I can't do because I have a beard now and I miss it. Like every once in a while, I'm like, I remember when I could suck a glass onto my face <laughs> and that was fun. It's, like, it's just like a nice, a fun kinesthetic thing to do. And now I have to like have a fidget spinner instead. I, I also have a beard now and I can't remember the last time I've done this trick. And now I have some FOMO. Yeah. Wow. Who was that? That was, uh, it was too fast, too furious uh, outside just happened. I live on a street corner here in Oakland. People like to have some sideshow parties every now and then or just blaze through. Oh, sounds like a good time. <laughs> oh, yeah. I hope we get a sideshow in the background of one of these recordings. <laughs> can, can we get the best of both worlds with the beard and with the sucking a glass onto your face by cutting... By just normalizing as a society, you cut a hole in your beard around your mouth, perfectly sized so that you can still suck a glass onto your face. I can't think of a reason why that wouldn't work. I think that would work. If there are any physicists in the audience, if you could write in and let us know if that would work. The other thing that I was thinking about is um, I think you could wax your beard and make this happen. They get a seal that way. That what kind of what kind of glass do you generally need to do this? Are we talking like a rocks glass, a taller glass? You know, man, I don't remember. It's been so long. I I mean, it's got to fit my chin in it, and my chin was much smaller back then. Oh wait, so you you fit your? Maybe we suck glasses onto our faces a different way. I never you I could I never fit the the my chin in onto it, it into it. It's more like it encapsulates the region around, just directly around my mouth. Wow. This isn't, so this isn't a video call, so we can't demonstrate, but I picked up a glass mm-hmm. and I'm like putting it on my face and, and, and trying to figure out like which way feels right. And the way that feels right, definitely like the lip of the glass, like one lip is going under my chin and the other lip is going above my lip. That's the problem. It isn't that you can suck. That is that you can't you can't suck glass around and your you can't suck glass anymore with your beard. It's that you're using too large of a glass. You're using a real, you're trying to suck a very large glass around your face, 
And that feels, again, rooted in a sort of human arrogance, which I can appreciate, but I can't encourage. Aim smaller. All right. All right. I'll, I'll try this with a shot glass. Yeah. Like, and I'll, rest I'll, it. Hope includes, I'll include pictures in the show notes. <laughs> rest the lip. So there's no one right way to, to, to suck glass, but from the way, the way in which I have been tutored, you have the, the, the glass at maximum rests against the top edge of your chin to the mid of your chin, and you yeah. rate the suction with your mouth and it's just entirely fitting on your face almost like a gas mask who taught you how to suck glass and where and can i learn from them as well (laughs) so i feel like at some point maybe this is apocryphal but i looked over as a toddler to see a different kid we were like like an applebee's or something and i saw a different Uh kid and we locked eyes for a second and they did it and they sort of like released it from their face and they put it back onto their face. It was kind of like when you're playing a multiplayer game and you don't have an ability to voice communicate when like when you're playing journey and you're just sort of like jumping and sort of waiting for the other person to respond and communicating through this indirect motion method. And I did the same thing and I, I just kind of picked up through I picked up my glass, I, I, I sucked the glass, and I, I learned through this indirect human, this, this brilliant momentary human connection, how to put a glass on my face. So I'm going to learn this from my own son when he is, a, when he is uh, <laughs> he's learned enough to have figured it out himself. I think that the children are our future uh, for more, in more ways than one. Uh, that's a good place to end the show. <laughs> That was a positive note, yeah. Kev, if this is something that you want, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, Find me on Twitter at KevZettler. It's the handle. And Nelson, if this is something that you want, where can people find you on the the internet? You can find me on the internet at at W-R-I-T Nelson, at Brit Nelson. And it has been a pleasure being here. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, thanks for being on. Yeah, good chatting with you both. It's a fun time. Hi, this is Jim. This is the audio I append to every episode of Topic Lords. Congratulations to our newly anointed lords. If you'd like more people to hear the show, you can tell your friends about it, or rate and review us on whatever podcast service you use. You can add content to the Topic Bucket by emailing topicbucket at topiclords.com. You can contribute to our Patreon at patreon.com slash topiclords. Patrons get episodes a week early, and you get access to the Topic Lords Discord, where you can discuss topics with all the lords that hang out in there. See you next episode.